Amen. Let's pray together one more time before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the glorious truths that we sung. And that doxology, that is the prayer of our heart. But we pray that you would be supremely magnified and that as we study your word now, that you would exalt your son Jesus, that he would be supreme over all things and that we would marvel and that we would delight in his supremacy. Father, we pray that you would help us to have a proper notion of what this world is really all about and what you're doing in this world and exactly the purpose for which you sent your son. And so help us, Father, to see everything that we see through the lens of Christ. We pray that you would cause him to be not only exalted and magnified and help us to understand his power and authority but lord may he be our chief delight may we rejoice in the son may we love the son may we fellowship and commune with your son we thank you father for the ministry of the son especially as it has to do with laying down his life and dying on the cross and redeeming a sinful humanity like us. Father, who can tell of the wonders and the glories of your grace as we gaze upon the beauty of the King? Help us now to see his beauty and to set it forth and to allow it to rise in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 2 is a psalm that is explicitly uh, messianic. The psalmist is not holding anything back in this psalm. This psalm is directly and explicitly setting forth in front of us the supremacy of Jesus Christ as God's Son King. And if you would, it, as, as if we have a hyphenated word there, it is the Son hyphen King that is being set in front of us because that's what he is. He is God's son. He is God's king. He is our king. And this psalm really moves along in four stages. At least that's the way that I want to outline the psalm as we proceed to study the psalm. In this psalm, we are going to see the son's hatred or the hatred of the son, the the hatred of Christ himself, In verses 4 to 6, we're going to see the confidence of the Son. In verses 7 to 9, we will see the covenantal character of Christ's mission. And then, lastly, verses 10 to 12, we will see the dire warning that is issued forth to the world concerning the Son. That's the way that it moves along. In this section, however, what we're seeing is the hatred of Christ. Let's read those verses again, verses 1 to 3, because that's our focus today. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing the way that this... Psalm works here. And what we're going to see, in fact, in this section is the the universal, united, and moral opposition to God and to His Son, King Jesus. First, 
Of course, we see the universal opposition to Christ in that opening phrase. Why are the nations in an uproar? It's as if the psalmist, who is the king of Israel, David, it's as if the psalmist understood that all the nations surrounding Israel were in an uproar against Israel, against their king, and ultimately, as he goes on to explicitly say, against the Messiah, because the word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach. It is the Messiah that is in, ultimately in view here. But notice that, this question, why are the nations in an uproar? Now, of course, he's going to go on to point out the, the utter futility of the, the rage of the nations that, as Isaiah will say, they are like a drop in the bucket in the presence of God. It really is, in one sense, laughable. Uh, and I mean that literally. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It is laughable that sinful humanity would raise its fist against God. It is laughable that the nations would fantasize about being able to skirt their responsibility to their creator, and yet all of the world lives like this. They live in the hope that they can achieve autonomy. We'll get there. We'll see that. But you can see this. This question that he asks here really calls into question the hostility that exists throughout um, the teaching of Scripture. I mean, going all the way back to the very beginning, you remember? Turn there with me just to show you something. Genesis chapter 3, we looked at this at Sunday school briefly, but Genesis chapter 3, you can see where this hostility began. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we are told that God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, that is Satan, and her seed. And it says, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, that's very interesting because what is the seed of the serpent? Well, the seed of the serpent is everyone and anyone who's chosen to identify with this Christless, godless, evil world system. It is a system, after all, upon which the evil one himself has total and absolute influence. But needless to say, here in this passage, what we're seeing is this universal extent of this hostility. And you can trace it all the way through the Bible. You can see it from Genesis immediately as Cain kills Abel. And then you see it again through the, 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 the hostile relationships that you find in the righteous descendants of Seth, leading all the way to the confusion of the of the nations of Babel, you see this, for example, in Abraham's life in Genesis 14, in the battle of the four kings. You see this all throughout Israel's history. You see this in the Exodus as Israel is surrounded by the greatest cosmic power on earth in that day, namely Egypt. And then you see this all throughout the rest of the history of Israel in Babylon and Assyria and other various enemies. They have always been in an uproar. And down to our own day-to-day, people are still in an uproar against God and against His Christ. As a matter of fact, but you see that the fulfillment of this is not only does it go through biblical history, and it is actually properly fulfilled in the New Testament, as we're going to see here, but it goes on even down to our own day. Uh, turn with me in Acts chapter 4, because Acts chapter 4, the authors of the New Testament had no hesitation whatsoever in using and applying and seeing the fulfillment of this psalm in the life of Christ in his advent. 
Acts chapter 4, beginning of verse 24, says this. They heard this and lifted up their voices to God with one accord, saying, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, so there in uh, Acts chapter 4, explicitly attributes the authorship of Psalm 2 to David, by the way. He said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a futile thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered their together against the Lord and against his Christ. You see that the translation there in, in, in the New Testament is he's gone from the anointed to Christ because that's how you would translate the Greek and that's how the Greek Septuagint uses that term. But then in verse 27 he says, For truly in this city, now this is now... Verse 27, the apostolic application interpretation of this psalm. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant to your bondservants that may speak your word with all confidence. Notice the response to the hostility of the church here. Say, grant to your bondservants to speak the word with all confidence. In other words, we do not shrink away. We do not shy away from this hostility, from this uh, persecution, from the world that we live in. And notice how that even though that psalm was fulfilled in Christ, yet the hostility of the rulers of this world still goes on into the church and the persecution of the church. It is really amazing. We will see the utter futility of this upheaval in verse 4. It's just a fantasy. It's a vain thing that the nations are seeking to do as they rebel against Christ and his king so that universal opposition to Christ really is universal frustration. Now, let's just try to understand this a little bit better here. Notice, um, and this is our second point, not only is there a universal opposition that the psalmist says exists against Christ, but there's also a united opposition. Notice what he says. He says here, nations are not only in an uproar, and the peoples devise a vain thing. It says the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. You see that? They're gathered together against God and His Christ. Now, this goes back again to understanding that, that really, as the psalmist is seeing this, and as the psalmist is seeing this lived out in his own life, really through his kingship and through the nation of Israel, he understands that on a typological level, this applied ultimately to Christ and to His people So that really what's going on here is that on the historical level, we are being pointed to a much deeper spiritual level. They devise a vain thing. The rulers take their counsel together. There is a united opposition to Christ. I mean, think about who was united against Christ in Acts 4. Did you notice that, by the way, when I read that? The Jews and the Romans... Could you think of a more opposite group of people coming together for anything? Uh, That's often the case, by the way. But this opposition is ultimately undergirded, as I said. This rebellion is ultimately undergirded by a deeper hostility still, which is a satanic, a demonic hostility. Let me just read some scriptures for you, because in one sense, this rebellion is due to the abject ignorance 
that comes from a satanic influence that undergirds the entire force of evil that motivates today's cosmic powers. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined for, before the ages for our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of the age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The reason why they didn't understand it is because the message of the cross is foolishness to those that perish. That's exactly what he just got done saying in the earlier chapter. Why? Because God has rendered the wisdom of this age foolishness so that the world through its own wisdom will never come to know the living God. So instead, they pass over the Messiah. They miss the Messiah. They misunderstood who he was. They couldn't fathom and they couldn't grasp that he was, in fact, the Lord of glory. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3? If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, there is a satanic influence that is imbibing all of the rulers of this age to take their stand against God and against his anointed. We know. That the whole world, this is not an overstatement, you know, pastors are known for overstating things. I can't overstate the issue here. I'll just quote John, I'll blame it on him. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. As a matter of fact, the Greek is even more intense than that, because the translation I have supplies the word power. But the word power, dunamis, or any other form of the word, is not in the original Greek text. You know what it says? The whole world lies in the evil one. That's literally what it says. Now, we understand that we have to make some kind of interpretive decision there. What do you mean the whole world is in? So the whole world is actually in, in Satan, in the devil? Well, no, that's not exactly what it means. It means something like they are all under his influence. They are all uh, uh, under his power, under his, his, his spell, if you would. They're under his power. They're under his influence. They lie in the lap of the evil one. It's exactly where our world finds itself today. There's a satanic influence that began all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that goes throughout all ages in biblical history and all of it is calculated and all of it is directed directly against the Lord and against his anointed. Ignorance is not innocence. In the Bible to be ignorant of the knowledge of God is not a good thing. It just shows the depth of the depravity of man. Whenever God and his son are brought into the equation, you see the universal united hatred of God. Always, every time. You'll see this, and I'll point this out to you in a minute. Two things become very clear here. The world's opposition is aimed directly at God, and the world is often willing to set aside all sorts of their personal differences to unite against God. I mean, you see this on an evangelistic level. When you can have a Muslim, a Jew, a homosexual, uh, 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 you know, a 
whatever, what else is there? Postmodern, transgender, whatever. All the different characters, different religions. I've had Catholics, Muslims, homosexuals, all united together against the gospel. (laughs) It's It's as if they're willing to set aside for the moment the fact that they hate each other because they have a vile hatred for each other. Do not be deceived. But their hatred is even more vile for God and for His Christ. If we back up and just think about for a moment the context of Psalm 2, which was Psalm 2 was used in a ceremony to, uh, for the coronation of the kings of Israel. It would be read over them when they would be installed. And so the way that David saw it is that the king and Israel and all the nations surrounding them hated him. And by hating him, they hated God. And by hating God and hating him, they hated God's people. That's the way that it was. You see, it's inseparable. In one sense, it's inseparable. If, God, if, if man is going to hate God and hate Christ, they will hate his people. And so we can expect that exact same thing. The, the, the issue here is actually that the world is anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-church. Jesus, by the way, took this extremely personal. When you persecute the church, you persecute him. That's what he told Saul, remember? Acts chapter 9, he was traveling and it happened. As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, we're we're told in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, that what was Paul's ambition? It wasn't just to persecute a few churches. It said he wanted to destroy the church of God. Wipe it off the map if he could. And that same... Godless antichrist hostility exists now and today, and it will forever. So Psalm 2 is also eschatology, because it's preparing us that in the present evil age, this hostility, this level of vitriol hatred towards Christ and his people, this will go on until the end of the age, and it will not end. Until at last, in Revelation chapter 11, when the kingdoms of this earth are made the kingdoms of our God. In other words, when his heavenly universal reign comes down and dominates the whole world, creates a new heaven and a new earth, no more enemies, all enemies are done away, done away with, all, all the wicked have finally been condemned and consigned to hell. And now Jesus will reign But what is the nature of this opposition? Why do they hate him? Why does man hate God so much? Romans chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4, various different places. They hate God. Romans 1.30, haters of God. That is is an analysis of of the depravity of man's heart. That he gets to the place, because of his depravity, because of his sinful nature, that in hating everything that is good and right that God has revealed, in hating God's law, hating God's ways, hating God's word, hating God's standards, they are hating God. 
That's the real problem of man. It's very simple. They, hate, they love sin and hate God. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. They love darkness rather than light. It couldn't be any clearer. No, you know, the word of God doesn't hold back any punches. But look at, the, look at the nature of the opposition. Not only is there a universal opposition to Christ, not only is there a united opposition to Christ, but finally there is also a moral opposition to Christ. Notice the language that's used here. The kings of the earth are saying what? Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What is this saying exactly? What is the language that's being used here? As a matter of fact, this, these terms, fetters, cords, these were used in two different uh, contexts historically. They either can refer to the type of ropes that you would put on animals like an oxen, how you would tie up an oxen and put a, a, a yoke upon the animal so that you can control it, or they were used of bonds that you would sort of uh, that you would tie up a, a, a criminals or, or even captives. It's used in, in in various literature of 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 kings that would go in and they would conquer a nation and they would tie up the captives. These bonds, these cords. Now they don't see God as a possessing cords and bonds of love. They only see that these cords are a constraining factor. And what is at issue here, ultimately, brothers and sisters, be not deceived, what is at issue here, ultimately, is autonomy. Man, above everything, desires autonomy. Why do you think the devil came and tempted man with autonomy? That's first. That's before you get to all the other kinds of sins you can think of in the world. The very first thing is that temptation consists of man pursuing self. Pursuing your own way. Of doing away with restraint, control, authority, accountability. This is precisely what the rulers of this age do not want is to be under God's dominion under his control, under his sovereignty. Autonomy is an illusion. There is no such thing. When the serpent asked Eve, has God really said? What he was wanting for Eve to do is to think for herself. In other words, think independently and autonomously from God. We covered this extensively as we looked at protology in Sunday school, but this is Satan coming as the anti-lord of the covenant of creation and asserting his own law and trying to uh, uh, steal God's covenant community and make them his own community with his own rules, his own standards, his own authority, his own dominion. Boy, he is crafty. Genesis put it right. The serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field. That is metaphor that is meant to show us the absolute brilliance, diabolical brilliance of the devil. I asked my wife once, if you think of Antichrist, what comes to your mind? And immediately, you know, horns and the devil and demons, you know. I said, what about exquisite beauty? How about that? Has that ever popped in your mind when you thought about Antichrist, Satan, the devil? It should, 
Because we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan comes like an angel of light. He comes in brilliant, luminous beauty to tempt. Right? Isn't that, I mean, can't we all testify to that based on, the, based on our own sins alone? Right? Oh, it looks so good. Oh, it sounds so good. Oh, it promises. What it's promising, it just sounds and feels and looks so good. Beauty, goodness, that which is going to satisfaction, fulfillment. That's what sin is saying until at last it gives birth to death and the veil is taken away and the identity of the abhorrence and the heinousness and and the odious nature of sin actually comes out. That's what's going on in this world. There is a universal, united, moral opposition to God and to His Christ. Do not expect this world to ever conform to God's kingdom. No, I don't mean that you're not going to have little, uh, little examples of righteousness here and there. Oh, sure, you will. But when you look at the total picture, at the end of the day, you can have... I mean, I've been wondering this. If Donald Trump is a Christian, why hasn't he obliterated Planned Parenthood? What is he waiting for? Right? He says he's a Presbyterian. Well, I know a lot of Presbyterians, and none of them are pro-choice. I mean, what in the world is our president waiting for? As the slaughter of the unborn goes on and on and on, How can you make that part of the back agenda? Put that to the front. Change that if you truly believe what you say that you believe. Why hasn't he attacked homosexual marriage that is an abomination in the eyes of God? You see, when you start talking about the real holiness of Scripture, the real righteousness of Scripture, you start talking about God and His anointed, then you can expect there to be universal opposition. Total confusion. Total disarray. That's what results from the persecution that we see all around us. It's total confusion. It's amazing. I've never once thought ever that we've ever had a Christian president. Uh, If you're gullible enough to believe that, uh, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, after all, we don't live in a righteous country. My dear friends, do you understand... (laughs) that we do not in any way whatsoever live in a righteous world. How can we? I mean, the United States of America is the number one exporter of pornography around the earth, around the globe. Up to right now, the estimates now are in the 60s. 60 million unborn babies slaughtered. I mean, you think you live in a righteous Christian country? Absolutely not. I mean, don't get me wrong. I thank God under His common grace that we live in a country where there is some sort of law and order and people say, well, I turn on the news and I don't really see law and order. I'll tell you what, I've traveled around different parts of the world. Let me take you to some third world countries. You'll be really happy to come back to America. Let me tell you that right now. I'm not saying, you know, that I'm ungrateful for the comforts that God and His providence has afforded us. But under common grace, common grace has its limits. The limitations of common grace will never eliminate persecution. Will never eliminate persecution. You can see it everywhere. Man hates accountability. 
From the pornography cartels in Hollywood to the corruption of politicians in Washington and around the world to the leaders of false religions and cults down to your co-worker in the cubicle next to you, what they want is autonomy from God's ultimate authority. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. The mind is set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do it. In order for you to subject yourself to the law of God, you need to have a new heart. You have to be regenerated. That is what the new covenant is all about. It is about God writing his law on your heart. And when he writes his law on your heart as a child of God, you delight in the law of God. You love the law of God. You rejoice in the law of God. The last thing you want to be is severed from God. From a redemptive historical perspective and how we trace the development of the story of the plan of redemption throughout the whole Bible, we could say that the issue in Psalm 2 is about the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. Scripture tells us that by virtue of having been transplanted out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light, into God's kingdom, that's why the world hates you and the hatred will intensify the minute you are transferred from one kingdom to the next. Listen to the words of Jesus. John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Wow. In other words, if you are able to cozy up to this evil world system, I'm not talking about going to work. I'm not talking about going to your neighbor's kid's birthday party. I'm not talking about, you know, doing the types of things that the unsaved person has to do, like eat and go shopping or whatever. I'm talking about identifying, warming up to this evil world system. In other words, sharing in its values, sharing in its, mor- in its moral principles that are all godless and antichrist, primarily because what they do, they do not do to the glory of God. Even the smallest thing is not done to the glory of God. And Jesus is telling his disciples, if you were of the world, then the world would love its own. If the world loves you, if you can cozy up to the lifestyle of an unsaved person and be comfortable there and have that person affirm and delight in the way that you are sharing life with them, something is wrong. That's not salt and light. That is compromise. I had a good friend of mine. He was, a, um, he was the, uh, the dean of administration for a seminary. He had a homosexual brother-in-law, and he thought, you know what, I've shared the gospel with him before. I'm just going to invite him over and just, you know, just kind of try to do the, let's just hang out and just, you know, just watch the ball game or something. So he lets him come over, and he brings over his homosexual sin partner. That's what they are. Um, Please don't buy the politically correct words and titles and vocabulary that the world is using today, okay? He is a sin partner. That's what he is, right? And he sat there thinking to himself, okay, I'm doing it. I'm just doing life with these guys in hopes that 
something might rub off. And then as time went on, he just started feeling his soul vexed and vexed and vexed. Just feeling like, am I really affecting them or are they affecting me? What's going on here? What am I really doing? And he shared this conversation with me. I thought it was very enlightening because I thought, you know what? Boy, the Bible is so true, isn't it? Bad company corrupts good morals. You will not, you will not accomplish evangelism by putting up with sin and ignoring sin. This is where we have to have the boldness and the courage. And eventually he did. He said, I, I can't do that anymore. You can't come over with your, with your sin partner anymore and come over here and pretend like everything is hunky-dory when it's not. When you've chosen to live in a lifestyle that is so detrimental to your eternity and I'm supposed to sit here and eat chips and dip with you? I don't think so. I think I need to take a stand and I need to pull you aside and say, brother-in-law or whoever you are, do you understand that your lifestyle is leading you to hell? You may never want to talk to me again. You may never want to see me again. We may never have, you know, we never enjoy a ball game together again. But I plead with you to repent because what you're doing is an affront to God. Yeah, you're definitely not having dinner after that again. But we should love it that we are transferred out of this evil world system and put into the system of the kingdom of God's light. Jesus said, because you are not of the world and because I chose you out of the world, because of this, underline that in your Bible, John 15, 19. Because of this, the world hates you. It's not just because you're corny. It's not just because you're a party killer now, you're a buzz killer. It's not because you're just a joy killer. It's not because you're uptight. It's not because you're uncool. It's not because you dress funny. It's not because you talk funny. It's not because you sing corny songs in church. I'm, I'm talking, this is the perspective of the world looking in. It's not because of all of those external things. What it really is, it's the, it's the fact that you have been consecrated by Christ. And that spiritual consecration, that Tearing away from the the kingdom of darkness will make the kingdom of darkness hostile to you. What does Peter say? 1 Peter chapter 3 says, They are surprised that you do not continue to run in the excess as they do. In other words, what? You don't watch this? You don't listen to this? You don't think that's funny? Now, we give thanks to God for qualifying to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. First Colossians or Colossians chapter one, verse 12, 13 says he rescued us from the domain of darkness, the domain of hostility. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Is it any wonder that the psalmist joins God and Christ together when describing the world's opposition? Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, you can go there, I could just read it to you. After all, it is God's kingdom, it is Christ's authority that is the issue here. Revelation 12, 10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation, power, and and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, and he who accuses them before God day and night. 
The world detests Christ's authority. They hate his, his ethics. They hate his standards. They hate his morals. In John chapter 7, verse 7, he says, The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. Don't try to make Christ relational. Don't try to make Christ palatable, manageable, marketable. He is not. When the real Jesus stands up, the world will always think of him as being intolerant, bigoted, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, xenophobic, narrow-minded, judgmental, holier-than-thou, religious zealot, with really nothing to offer us except for Christmas and Easter, and even then, most churches prefer the Easter bunny. In other words, the true Jesus is always going to be intolerable. He's always going to be distinct, separate, transcendent. In a word, holy. You can't fake holy. You can go to church. You can read the Bible. You can give money. You could dress up. You could try to lace up, come to church, act straight. But you cannot fake holy. Holiness is a spiritual sense that has been given to the soul of man at regeneration. There was, before you were saved, it was a taste bud that you did not have. It was a savor that you did not have. It was an appetite, it was an impulse that you were not capable of. And when you became regenerate, suddenly your soul had the capacity to savor God. You had the capacity to enjoy God, to love God, to savor Him, to treasure Him. You had a capacity in order to, to, to worship in the spirit of holiness. That is something that you can't fake, right? Homeschool kids, kids that are growing up in a Christian home, this is dangerous territory. Because, man, I tell you what, Christian kids raised in a Christian home, you know, homeschooled even, they can fake a lot. They can memorize verses. They can recite the gospel. They can articulate. They could even shock you and seem brilliantly theologically accurate. I've baptized such kids only to see them fall away in an instant. She had a good testimony. She articulated conversion. She articulated repentance and faith, the gospel. She even knew the Trinity. She understood the hypostatic union. I mean, we drilled this young lady. That's just one example. And her theology seemed good and solid and right. So that we sat back as elders and we said, who can forbid water? And after she was baptized, it didn't take but three months, gone. Get a little freedom, grow up, get to go outside the house a little bit, hang out with people, get a car, a little bit of money. We'll see where your heart really is. That's why, to me, Christianity, when Jesus says, those who endure to the end will be saved. To me now, it is much more about where are you in 15 years than this explosive conversion story that you have to share to all of us. 
This incredible overnight Damascus Road experience that you had. I want to know, are you growing in Christ 10 years from today? That's what I want to know. That's when I will see, is there genuine fruit in your life? Ah, You see what I'm saying? I hope you share my, I don't know, I don't want to call it frustration, but, you know, Luther said I preach better when I'm angry. I'm not angry, but I'm, uh, I'm certainly exercised over just how serious it is to be real, how serious it is to walk with God in truth, how serious it is to be set apart for Him. On and on we can go. How does all this connect to Christ? This one is so obvious, right? Because this is a prophecy. I mean, this, this was fulfilled in Christ's incarnation. We understand this, that this is speaking ultimately about Christ and His kingdom. And that's the way that it works. Christ also, in this passage, we can, we can say that as we approach the New Testament, Christ explicitly warns the church of the world's hatred so that we are not surprised when the world hates us. And finally, Christ exposes the moral depravity of the world. And when He does that, He sets an example for you and I to follow. That Christ is not trying to be relational. Christ is not trying to be funny. Christ is not trying to be cool. Christ is not trying to sound and speak world. Christ is different. Christ is distinct. He doesn't play the game. He speaks truth all the time. Remember the woman at the well? This is our well here that Jacob gave us, um, right? He, she tries to enter into religious conversation with him. Jesus is so powerful in his witnessing. Bring me your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right, you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man that you're with now is not your, your husband. Slightly uncomfortable conversation. You ever been in those conversations? Slightly uncomfortable conversations? Everybody's everybody's nodding their head. It's a good point to end on right there, but he's agreeing with me. (laughs) Affirmation. Close in prayer. But he did that because he refused to play the game. He refused to enter into a fake religious conversation with the woman at the well that was sinking down into perdition because of her adulterous relationships. He cared for too much for that woman to play games. That's the way that we need to be with our co-workers, our family members, our neighbors, our friends, and when God gives us opportunity, that's what we need. We need to care too much for them than to play the religious game. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to let the chips fall where they may. God is with you. He will never let you down. He is with you to the end of the age. What we're going to continue to see in Psalm 2 Not just the hostility that we spoke about here today, but we're going to see God's sovereignty, His absolute power, His unmitigated reign and rule that is so comforting for every believer to know that we serve a sovereign God, a powerful God, a God that is not threatened by the things that He sees surrounding His people. And if He's not threatened, neither should we. Father, Help us to walk in faith and confidence even as we see persecution arise and erupt around us personally 
And, oh God, if we have eyes to see globally as the church is persecuted around the world, we understand there's more persecution today on planet Earth than ever before in the history of mankind. We understand that Psalm 2 is just as relevant today as it was the day that David wrote it, the day that the, that the apostles quoted it. We believe this hostility carries on today, and therefore his sovereignty and the comfort of his rule and his reign and his authority, that also carries over to today, and we take great delight in that. Help us, O oh God. Help us to trust in the power that you have over the present darkness, and help us not to lose heart. Help us not to lose hope. Help us not, as even as Asaph would say in Psalm 73, that, that as you see the wicked prosper, that you're tempted to grumble, to complain, to lose heart. Help us not to lose heart. We know that this is a momentary passing, uh, uh, just, a, just a, a passing scene in world history where it seems as if at times the darkness is so deep and the opposition and the persecution is so strong and the oppression is so pervasive that we can lose sight of our hope. And so, God, help us not to lose sight of that hope, regardless of what may come. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.